0: A lot of people are just carrying that cross around and they don't seek help. You know, Mm -hmm. I think that's maybe the hardest thing to do and particularly for men, we tend not to say, Mm -hmm. I think I'm unwell.
1: Welcome to Social Fabric. In this programme, we will bring you conversations with people who discuss their passion and their interaction with the community. We explore how different jobs, careers or achievements can inspire us to make small changes to improve our lives within our communities. If you would like to be interviewed or know someone that has a good story to share, email us at infosocialfabric.ie. Enjoy! So I want to start from um, your latest book because that was a fascinating book, the the Elder Terror, and uh, I thought it was very, very thought provoking and very interesting the the subject it was dealing with. Why? Well, tell us, what is it about, first of all?
0: All It's basically about, uh, it's about the plight of old people. Um, So I've always had this feeling ever since the the Lees, do you remember the Lees uh, Mm. nursing home Mm. scandal that old people are basically ignored? You know, I had a grandmother who used to make a virtue out of the fact that if she was losing an argument, she'd reach in and take out her hearing aid and turn it off. And there's basically (laughs) nothing you can do with someone who decides to to turn themselves off the conversation. But she lived in a nursing home in Bray, which was tucked away and I sort of realized that that's the way they all are. You know, if you even think of the one down in Church Lane and Church Road, they're down these driveways, and it's as if we should take old people mm. and sort of parcel them away from society. And I was just thinking about that, the fact that the society we live in is effectively the society they built, you know, prior to retirement, Absolutely. yet we pay them no attention. And then when you hear cases of abuse of elderly people, you kind of realize that in ways some of them are as helpless as children. You know, so I had this notion of, of, you know, could I write a sort of satirical book about old people, but actually old people standing up in some way that would win notice. So I came up with this notion, well, what if they started killing themselves in, in protest, but did it in really public ways mm-hmm. and then sort of turn it into partly a black comedy. So they, they do it in more and more extreme ways. But like all satires, it's, it's on one side, there's some black humor in mm-hmm. it, but it's also there to try and make a point. You know, to draw attention to something. So we go
1: from babies, nobody cares about us, to yeah.
0: to olders and anything in between. Yeah. Yeah. They talk about that notion of second childhood, but mm. you know, but we really care about children. Mm. We don't necessarily show the same level of care to old people.
1: Yeah, and there was a it was a lovely there's a lovely story there with obviously the son and the mother, and the way she's going through that early dementia, and uh, that's that that's very. I mean, it's very raw. A lot of people I know, a lot of people we know, and, and that, that too is, is so hard to deal with, you know, to, to deal with a parent that, uh, you know, is very healthy, but dementia is setting in, and uh, obviously that's, that's something you wanted to really uh, touch on. Um, and So this wasn't your first book, though. You wrote a number of books before that.
0: Yeah, I've, I've written... I've, I've written ever since I was sitting down in the back of the class in Presbury <laughs> scribbling away not paying attention yeah, to the yeah. maths teacher right. you know so it's always been something of a compulsion right. Um so I've I've written I've written quite a lot I've written eight books okay you know, all published all, all no no not all published yeah okay. you know I I I got an agent in London who's been trying to play some of them but okay. but being honest um I write a lot um, but sometimes it's kind of manically inspired so I just write and write and write and write right. um, so uh, I've, what I've been doing for the last year is actually going back on some of the books I was writing before uh, I was diagnosed with bipolar 2 and prior to that I was writing 6 totally different books at the same time and finishing none of them Right. so after I was diagnosed and was on medication I was able to focus and I've been sort of going back to those books and finishing them off one by one one by one, ok great so,
1: I'm going to ask you a lot more about that. But first of all, Rock and Roll Suicide by David Bowie. Yeah. Tell yeah. me a bit about that one.
0: But it's, it's really, really hard for everyone I know to, to pick songs. I mean, really? what criteria do you use? Do you pick your favorites or whatever? And I just took your advice and just thought of songs that I remember times for. You know, And Rock and Roll Suicide I remember because I, myself and a friend, uh, Decky Byrne, used to uh, travel home from town normally when we were supposed to be in school. And we go into go into the city and goof around and then come back on the train. And this is the old train. We're going back to the eighties, you know, before the dart and we used to sit uh, at the doors, you know, at the end of the carriages and just, he had a, an old Ferguson, you know, the cassette recorders mm-hmm. that you use your two fingers to push the buttons on mm-hmm. and we just sing, he'd, you know, he'd, he was working in golden discs on Tara Street and he'd always have music, so this was one of the songs we all used to blare out at the top of our voices and actually it's a great song to sing along to because Bowie basically talks, you know so you don't need any sort of voice to be able to keep up with it Time takes a
2: cigarette Puts it in your mouth. You pull on your finger, then another finger, then a cigarette. The water wall is calling, it lingers, then you forget. Oh, 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 you're a rock and roll suicide. You're too old to do that. Too young to choose it, and the clock waits so patiently on your song. You walk past the cafe, but you don't eat when you live too long. Oh no no no, you're a rock and roll suicide.
1: I'm gonna go back to the books for a second, Joseph. The idea of these conversations is to delve into the passions, people's passion, and why? Why do you write? I suppose. Or why I, do you start to write, and why are you still writing?
0: I, I don't know. Largely, it's a compulsion. Okay. I, I just feel it's something I have to do for whatever reason. I think, but it really comes out of reading. You know, I've, I've read a lot from a very early age. I was sort of a voracious reader when mm. I was a kid and just couldn't get enough books. always had a book. And I was that pretentious kid in college who walked around with a, you know, a copy of Kafka sitting in the, the you know, visible in the corner of my jacket, you know, just <laughs> studying English. Yeah, it, looking like a total tosser. But, but, but I've just always read, and I think that interest in, in, in great books sort of leads you to try it yourself. And then you either find you can keep at it or not. I mean, that's the thing I learned, is just keep going, you know. And when you say keep going, do you write every day? Most days, yeah. Most days. Most days, I mean, well... I have six kids, I know. <laughs> so you can only do so much. And I, I'm fortunate enough to have a job that involves travel. And I find travel is a great time because you're away on your own. And in some cases, you're sitting on a plane for 11 hours. And it's a brilliant place to concentrate because you can go nowhere. And equally, nobody interrupts you. Nobody's emailing you or phoning you. So you can get quite a lot done. And do you
1: write shorthand and longhand? Do you write on the computer.
0: I now write on a computer. For for years, I wrote longhand, um, but I have the worst writing in the world. I should have been a pharmacist or a doctor. You know, it's even to me, it's it's basically illegible. So I've learned how to type two fingered and do it quite fast, and that's what I do now. Mm.
1: But you know, you hear some uh, famous writers, or famously, the the misery movie when the writer he had his little routine. He had to write a certain. Do you ever? Do you ever? And I know life and work and everything else comes in a way, but you try to stick to some sort of routine. If you sit down, you write a certain amount
0: or whatever comes, whatever you can. I can't, being honest. Okay. Uh, life doesn't give me that. Okay. <laughs> I wish it did. So what I try to do is when I'm writing, I, write, I try to write a lot. Okay. You know, I write five or 6,000 words at a go wow. and, and just turn it out and keep going until... Actually, there's great advice Ernest Hemingway had. He says, keep going until you know what you're going to do next. So don't exhaust whatever thought you have. Okay. Stop when you know where the next page is gonna start and then you don't have any issue with writer's block or anything, you can just pick up.
1: But does that not, um, if you stop there, you've, you have a stories going on and then you go, okay, I'm gonna stop here because I know I'm gonna pick it up tomorrow. And then tomorrow doesn't come because it might be two weeks before you can sit down again for whatever reason. How do you hold that thought?
0: Well, it's, it's good, actually. It's a pressure. It's a pressure you put on yourself. You're okay. afraid of forgetting what you were going to do next, so it okay. drives you back to the page.
1: Okay, so the, the thought stays with you. If it, I suppose if it's, a good, if it's a good one, it stays there, if it's yeah. just a passing. Okay, that's interesting. Um, one more song you had, a really nice song, Arcade Fire, Wake Up.
0: What about that? Yeah, it's, it's, it's always been a song that, for me, it's like a song about teenage years. You know, it's it's full of all that passion, you know, it's like, you know, that, that there's, that there's uh, I think a line in it is, we're just a million little gods making rainstorms, you know, I guess we, we just have to adjust. And it's that notion of, you know, I, teenage years are such fascinating years. I was a teacher for years and teenagers get such a bad press. You know, Yes, I've got one, you know, several of those over the years where they <laughs> walk around the house grunting and they won't look you in the eye, and you know, they seem to be constantly in a bad mood. But actually, teenagers are full of incredible passions. They're passionate about everything. They, they, they're bursting with emotion that they often can't express. Mm-hmm. You know, and I, I, As I said, I taught uh, kids between the ages of 12 and 18 for 12 years, and every day was different. Every day they'd surprise you. you know, you'd walk into a room, and you never faced boredom. I taught English, which helps. Because you know, you'll find something that'll spark interest. Mm-hmm. But Wake Up always seems to be like the quintessential teenage song, you know?
1: Because you say teenagers, and it's a bit like uh, like the elders. You know, we forget we were teenagers. We forget we're going to be older. You know? There's always old teenagers. Everybody hates teenagers for a period of time, and we were we were those people. But okay, so we've we spoken a bit about the, the writing, which is not your profession. I suppose, you, in a way, you probably would like to would like it to be your profession. But your your profession is fairly interesting. Um, Can you tell us a bit
0: about... Yeah, I I work in Microsoft, but I work in education. Mm -hmm. So I've been really lucky in that even though I I left teaching, I've worked in education all my working life. So part of what I do is I manage some of our global partnerships. So I manage our relationship with UNESCO, for example, which has been really eye-opening. So it's allowed me to to get deep on some issues that UNESCO really focus on, Mm -hmm. like literacy, yeah. So, for the last few years, I've been working very closely, so we're we're running some joint projects in Mexico and Bangladesh and Egypt and Ethiopia, you know looking at ways in which mobile technologies can help people learn to read and write mm-hmm. you know and one one of the things I learned, for example, is that that roughly a third of people who are illiterate live in a home where nobody else is literate. So if you think about you know trying to teach somebody to read when no one within the household mm-hmm. is capable of doing it, something like a a cheap mobile phone can actually play the part of the reader. And you know we, we're sort of examining ways in which that technology, you know, can actually help to scaffold learning, and that's been fascinating. You know, that's that's been fun.
1: Yeah, because that's well, I never thought of that way. I mean, you know, we're so we're so spoiled, so lucky here that yeah. you know, literacy is it's a given. You know, we, we worry about whether you get a, a good grade or a bad grade, but we never think of it that way. Yeah, you also did um, some other fascinating projects in the past. That we're oh, probably still working on, on cataloging. And, a lot of the languages around the world Yeah,
0: that's one of the things we found it sort of came out of the literacy work that um, it's much, much harder to learn literacy in a second language but most of what we have in terms of resources are in the main languages but there's 7,000 languages on the planet but one of them is dying every two weeks Wow. Which is really scary, you know. Wow. These minority languages are disappearing. Every two weeks. Every two weeks another language dies, wow. you know. And, and the unique words in that language disappear with with the speakers. I mean, I met a woman called Patsy Whitefeather in Washington when I was living in Seattle. And she was the last living speaker of 11 languages. You know, extraordinary, this woman in her 80s. But that we were desperately setting her up with these high school kids to try and capture... The stories in the language so they could be oh. preserved but you were sort of conscious that she was walking history oh. and when you know when she came to an end that that was it you know mm. part of her culture disappeared too
1: that's amazing and uh, so what what's your thought of being a, an ex-teacher being an irish ex-teacher what's your thought on uh, gaelic then
0: or irish or i i think it's a okay, so it's it's a hard question i think it's it's I think we've all suffered from the ways in which the language was taught in school. Yeah, I think mm. it's extraordinary that you can study a language for 14 years and no one can speak it. You know, I, I, I had to do an Irish teaching exam to be a teacher. So I was an English teacher, but I had to do my kiartastis so I could teach Irish mm. uh, to qualify. But I have basically no Irish. You know, uh, uh, nobody I know speaks it, you know, it, and, but it's a terrible shame. You know, mm. I think it's a beautiful and a musical language and it needs to be preserved and protected. I mm. think there's been a huge change in, mm. in the last few years where it's becoming, it's developing a vernacular. It's becoming a language of the young, yeah. you know, which it wasn't. You know, in, yeah. in my day when I was being taught it in school, it was the language of the Christian brothers. <laughs> you know, it was almost something to be avoided. <laughs> and I think it's, I think that's changing in a very healthy way.
1: Oh, that's great. You yeah, know, it is, uh, it's a shame that not, it's not, it's not as much as it should be and uh, but yeah interesting to hear from your perspective that been worked on that project as well but um you have a song here by the blue nile tomorrow morning
0: yeah, I, ju- I just love the Blue Nile. Uh, actually, I was given um, a copy of their first LP by one of the kids I taught. You know, when I was teaching in Sligo a long, long time ago. Just sort of, you know, it's amazing that that interchange that would happen with teenagers. You think you're passing on your taste in music to them, but every now and then they come up and say, "You've got to listen to this." Mm-hmm. You know, and the, their first album is called "A Walk Across the Rooftops," and it was like nothing I'd heard before. And Paul Buchanan, the lead singer, has such a plaintive voice. So I've always loved their music, and that one sort of. Uh, it's just really, really evocative. You know, it always makes me think about family and relationships. You know, that there, there's a, a um, the language of the of the of the song is a bit like a very simple poem. You know, and it's it's a simple acoustic track, and a lot of what they did is sort of electronic. But it's just a song that haunts me. It's
1: And just before the song you mentioned about family and relationships and the next question was, in fact, amongst the other things you're doing, like you're working, you're traveling, you're writing, but uh, your first most important job is I suppose, you're a father yeah. of six children and uh, with a an nice spread between college and primary school. So, tell me a bit about that. What's um, the challenge? It must be the hardest job you've done so far. Oh, it's, it's the best job in the
0: world, though, isn't it? I mean, I think if, if you were to define yourself as anything, it's dad first, you know, yeah. that's, that's whatever I do, you know, I'm, I'm a dad, yeah. you know, and, that's, and, and I'm a husband, and they're the things that are most important. Yeah. You know, um, You know, my relationship with Sylvia, and my relationship with the kids is the most important thing, sure. you know. And and I can't, I could go on for hours about my kids, you know. Like like oh, any father, yeah, 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 I'm just delirious about them and about yeah. how special and wonderful they are, yeah. you know. And and I have, as you say, a huge spread. But when we were living in the states, we, we joked that we were stress testing the American education system <laughs> because I had someone in college, uh, someone in high school, someone in middle school, someone in elementary school, and one in kindergarten. So we were covering all the bases, <laughs> you
1: know. Yeah, I remember a, year, a couple of years ago. You told me well, a few years ago you told me that it um, was the first time that uh, you went through the supermarket without having to buy a pair of nappies. Oh, it's just such a great day!
0: I, I <laughs> so, you went 19 years or so, 20 years of nappies basically. You know, whether there were pull ups at the end, but I can remember the day of going out the front of the house and tossing the high chair and, and the potty in the skip and thinking, <laughs> you know what, it's <laughs> been great, but, but thank god this day has arrived. <laughs> But in terms of, because it, there's a lot of,
1: um, I mean, there's a lot of strains on relationships in Ireland at the moment, everywhere, really, but in Ireland seem to be getting worse and worse by the day, to my mind, and that's one of the reasons I, I wanted to work on this project, because I really do believe the conversation is the key to a lot of things, you know, yeah. whether it's within your own family and outside your community and so on, but I mean, not that I'm expecting to give us an advice on being a father, but... I mean, the, the highs and lows. How do you deal with like this? Six kids is a lot of kids in today's age, and uh, and you know, as I say, from twenty
0: six to age, to twenty
1: three down to 23 edge. to eight. So, yeah. so you're constantly that teenage years. You're going through the teenage years very quickly with a lot of them.
0: How do you deal with it all? How? What oh, do you g- do? We gave into the chaos years ago. you know, if they talk about that change from from you know the, the big step up from having two kids to having three. You know, instantly you're outnumbered. You know, you <laughs> used to be able to divide and conquer. And then you just keep going and then you end up with six and you kind of have to give in to the chaos and just do your best. You know, and I'm sure my kids will either now or in the future, they'll look back and say, you did an okay job maybe. I think that's the most you can hope for. Yeah. You know, maybe they'll, they'll see some of the things you, you got right. They'll definitely remember the things you got wrong. Yeah, yeah. But you know, all you can do is try your best. Try your and, best. I, and I think the key thing is just to try and find time. You know, it's, it's particularly with, with lots of kids, it's hard to find enough time. You never find enough time to go and kick a ball with, with the sure. kid who wants to play football or spend some time with a kid who's doing a project or whatever, you try and parcel up that time as best you can. But it's important to to recognize how important it is. You know, it's yeah. it's the one thing they want, that sure. kids want. Sure, sure.
1: And um, a song that comes in at this stage is uh, that you picked is um, Kate Bush.
0: Yeah, I, I, and Dream of Feet. She- I know, and it's it's. I just love Kate Bush. You yeah. know? I, actually, I was, I was when I was looking at the songs I was going to choose, I was surprised by how many female singers I like. You know, like people like Bjork and Cat Power and Birdie and you know, uh, Jonas Police Woman and a lot of those female artists. But I just love Kate Bush because she's such an, you know, a, a, an artist without compromise. I mean, she wrote a suite of songs on that album, H- Hound of Love, about somebody shipwrecked floating on the back waiting for a helicopter to rescue them, including the sound of the helicopter. I mean, where did she get that? You know, it's, it's just so uncompromising and original. And that song itself is just so incredibly evocative. You know, it's got so many shifts in tone. Mm. And her voice is just just wonderful. Little
2: light,
0: shiny. Little
2: light, guy.
1: I mean, if I a few years ago, you made a decision, whatever decision, you guys moved to the States, you moved to... Um, Seattle. Part, Seattle, sorry, moved to Seattle. And uh, <clears throat> so you moved from a smallish community that was Grace County Wicklow. where you knew everybody pretty much to a different world. But what was that like?
0: It was, it was one of those circumstances where, you know, the basic question was, do you, do you want a job? well, your job is moving to America, what do you think? So it wasn't as if we sort of sat down and put a lot of thought and said, let's go on an adventure. But we decided to treat it as an adventure. What we said is, we don't know how long we're going to be there, but it's an opportunity to show the kids a bigger world. You know, yes, it's going to be unsettling and it's going to be difficult for them and they'll have to make new friends. But we thought that they're going to take something out of it just to see, you know, a a bigger world in that sense. So what, what we found very much was that's what happened. So our kids were sitting in classrooms, and suddenly, instead of everybody looking like them, which is, you know, effectively we live in a in a monoculture here, mm-hmm. they were sitting beside kids of different languages, different colours, you know, there were kids whose names they couldn't spell who were best friends, you know, and, the, and that intermingling of cultures was something that was really, really good, you know, and it was good for us as well, you know, we, you know it took us out of our comfort zone as well, mm-hmm. you know, we had to relearn how to Get to know people, you know, and figure out how to do anything and everything, you know, the, the things we take for granted. So it was struggle. It probably took us a good year and a half to two years until we bought our own house to sort of get our feet under the table and feel relatively settled. And then, of course, a few years later, we come un- back. unpicked it and moved back, and that was just as traumatic.
1: But before we come back, uh, what I'm curious about is um, and probably Seattle and where you were probably is not typical, but uh, the sense of. Um, community that you had here yeah, when you left, which, you know, it, 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 we're in a bit of a cocoon. And, but we know everybody, you know everybody, yeah. and it's nice, and you can drop the kids with a neighbour and whatever. You can go down to on a Thursday night for your pint with your friends, which is, it's all nice, it's all right. Yeah. Uh, was that there? No.
0: I mean, the, the, okay. the, the Thursday pints disappeared immediately, because um, <laughs> people just don't do it. Mm. You know, it's a very different culture. People are... And I don't want to mean this in in a derogatory sense, but they're superficially friendly. It it doesn't mean that they're, you know, in some way malevolent or anything like that. It's just that they're happy to have relationships at that level. But nobody's auditioning for new friends. Mm -hmm. You know, so it was very hard to break in, to break past that. The other thing that that sort of took us by surprise is that everything shuts down by 10 o'clock at night. You know, people get up really early. You know, schools start much earlier than they do here. But, you know, we would sat in restaurants at 10 o'clock in the evening and people were leaning on brooms thinking, will these people ever leave? You know, so the, there isn't the same society. I mean, we were living in a suburb. You know, mm. the, I'm sure mm. the center of Seattle City was sure. very different. But that was a big change, yeah. you know. So a uh, major, major change for you guys. In,
1: and uh, so the song you have there, and it's, it's, it's one uh, by Black Keys, great band, Fever.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, uh, I said earlier, I was diagnosed with bipolar. And I, I always think that song is about bipolar. If it isn't, you know, it, it, it should be, you know, the, the lyrics, you know, acting, acting right is so routine, you know, fever, let me live a dream. And it sort of, it it speaks to me of those extremes in mood that you get with bipolar too, you know, mm. and which, you know, can mean very long very deep depressions but also you get these hypomanic episodes where things are amazing and you can do anything and you know you miss that sort of euphoria and i think that song sort of captures that you know which is why i chose it
1: Of uh, coming back, then you just came back about a year ago, just over a year ago, back to Ireland after a few five years or so in the States. Five years, yeah. So in the meantime, the family grew, and uh, coming back here, in those five years, have you seen a huge difference? Or like obviously, you, you guys have changed somehow. Maybe your children have changed more than you have. But have you changed? Is, is much
0: changed? Other than a couple of new coffee shops, um, <laughs> you know, which seem to happen every year. Um, no, I think the essential things haven't changed. You know, yeah. one of the things that, that, you know, they they say this about good friends as well, is you can disappear for five years, come back, and just pick up the conversation you've been having. You know, we've done that, mm-hmm. right? You know, and you, you sort of slip back into sure. those friendly relationships. Sure. And, and that's been wonderful. You know, that's, that's helped us settle, you know, again. Um, we sort of went away for the most of the recession and came back and property prices are going up again. And everyone's wondering if we learned nothing, <laughs> you know, we'll have to wait and see. But I think that the, the essential sense of community you get in Greystones, which is why we moved here, why mm. we've lived here, mm. hasn't changed. And I think that's something maybe we take for granted. And it might have taken us, you know, the experience of moving away to fully realize that and fully value it. Yeah,
1: yeah, know that's it is. It's a, it's really important, and I think smaller towns like my well, great sons, is big, it's getting bigger and bigger. But there is a certain amount of community spirit that seem to be, you know, driving us all along. Just want to go back a little bit to the beginning, like your beginning, and such, and just give us a bit of a background. So some memories of when you're growing up. I mean, which would, would you let your fifteen year old son go out with your with your own with your 15, when you were 15. No. Um, so so this,
0: this this is the bit where you think, okay, this is going to be listened to by my kids. So like I can tell you some stories off air. Yeah, we'll talk know. about that off air. No,
1: but more, more. And what I'm trying to get at, really, uh, old jokes of ours is, we keep going on a pageant, but As we get older, but my times was different. My dad used to do, and my Mm. my parents used to say their time was different. Your parents, so it's always different. My point is, it's never different. It's always the same. Yeah. The environment might change. There's more houses and more mobile phones, but a 15 year old is a 15 year old, and I don't want you to go into details. But what what do you remember that you would like to have your kids having at the moment as a 15, 16, 17 year old? Which is this whole idea is aimed at.
0: I think one gift we had. You know, although at the time we didn't see it that way is, is we had time and we had boredom. You know, boredom is a wonderful thing because it pushes you to come up with something to do, you know, to develop an interest or to get together with a bunch of mates and say, why don't we do whatever? You know, and, and you know, social media gets a real kicking, you know, because people are worried about the damage it's doing to people. But I think that one thing it does deprive you of is time because you're constantly occupied. You know, you're you're looking at your phone, sure. you know, and and. I don't think that's intrinsically healthy. You know, I I remember some of the the daft things we would do uh, came out of boredom. You know, we said, look, we've got to get together. And, and the relationships we built with friends, you were kind of dependent on them because otherwise you were stuck on your own. Now, the thing I can't figure out is how we actually ever arranged to meet anyone, you know, because you couldn't text them or WhatsApp them or how we ever met up or located each other. I've no idea.
1: Well, somebody said to me the other day, the only way you knew your, where your friends were, you'd just look out for the bikes. The bikes would be lying Outside around somewhere in some park or yeah, yeah. some houses and you knew where they were. And uh, But yeah, through the boredom... Uh, the, the the constant interaction that we have with the with the devices is what really is prompt me to come up with some ideas to try to to get the teenagers out of the yeah. rooms again you know but that, that was just curious to see what uh, what your idea was but um, your second last song is a uh, fantastic song from amazing album by Bruce Springsteen across the border tell me a bit about that song yeah I
0: mean it's it's actually this it's a, it's It's a personal one, and so, you know, um, we all know some people recently who've passed away. You know, and and one of the things, I think you can't get to 55, I turned 55 in April, and you can't get to 55 without thinking a little about your own mortality, you know, and um, this is the song I'd like to have played at my funeral. You know, I think it's a beautiful sentiment, that Mm. notion of crossing border and, you know, meeting people there again and going on to somewhere else. I'm not religious, I have no clue what happens after we Mm. shuffle off this mortal coil or anything I wouldn't pretend to have any views on it. But I think that sentiment is a beautiful one and it's about, you know, uh, it's it's also about family. Okay. You know, so that's it's that's the reason trip. for that choice.
2: Ride my biggest pack. tomorrow I'll walk his tracks. It'll lead me across the bone Tomorrow my loving hand. We'll sleep neath all burnt skies somewhere across the border. We'll leave behind my dear the pain and sadness we found here And we'll drink from Bravo's muddy waters where the sky grows grey and white We'll meet on the other side Across the bone
1: you build a You mentioned a few times about your um, bipolar and, 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 and so on And uh, again, there's another thing that seems to be About social media, I'm looking at a lot of uh, mental health and Somebody mentioned to me, is mental wealth But you also did a, a talk at um, TEDx about the, the bipolar Tell me a little bit more about I mean, you say you were diagnosed a few years ago? Yeah. So just give me a little bit of the journey there as of when you were diagnosed and what, what happened before after and so on.
0: Well, my, my, my grandfather was what was termed manic depressive, um, but, but I never really knew him. You know, he died, I think, six weeks after I was born. And um, his uh, brother was also uh, out there. You know, so at one stage he dumped a set of Leaving Cert scripts into the Liffey because he was supposed to be marking them. So everyone that year got an A in that that particular cohort. But he sold all the furniture in in my grandfather's house one day when they were out so that my grandmother had to go around all the pawn shops in Gaple Street to buy them back. So there was kind of a history there. And My own dad had a problem with alcohol. um, But looking back, he was probably dealing with something else and Mm self-medicating. But I was diagnosed, I think, two and a half years ago. And things just fell into place for me, you know. I I didn't think there was anything wrong with me. There was, at times, there was something wrong with the world. You know, my view of the world. Because I used to go into really, really long depressions of eight, nine months. Mm -hmm. And in that time, there was nothing would give you joy. You know, you couldn't see the value in things. And you were in in a fairly dark place. Um, But it wasn't you. There was nothing intrinsically wrong with you. It was everything around you. It was Mm -hmm. people were, you know, at fault rather than you, yourself, or, or a condition. So when, when the diagnosis came in, it was kind of a 10-minute think. It was like, you know, you're obviously bipolar, because I used to get these periods of euphoria. Mm-hmm. And how I it, how it got diagnosed is uh, I went from a depression to suddenly everything was brilliant. And uh, Sylvia, my wife, turned around and said, it was, you know, what's changed? You know, suddenly, like, you're, you're up, you're, you're active, you're enthusiastic about everything, what's changed? And, and I realized the answer was nothing. So nothing at all was different, yet somehow I was different. So I thought I should go and find out why and I went to see a psychiatrist and a psychologist and they both said this, this is clearly bipolar mm-hmm. and it sort of, it put my whole life in ways into perspective. I thought of, I've done some pretty stupid things and some, you know, some extraordinary things in, in terms of, you know, going off and doing something. I went off and made a documentary with a friend of mine, Ian Campbell, we never had a script and I wasn't supposed to have the money. So I just used money from work and we went over to um, uh, Paris and we went to Washington DC and we went to Lesotho in Southern Africa and we were making it up as we went along. You know, that's not a normal thing to do. It It was great fun, but it wasn't logical. You know, and I looked back on my life and I'd done a lot of things in episodes, either those hypomanic episodes where, as I said, I was, you know, writing all night, I would travel to somewhere like Paris when I was going to UNESCO, and I'd stay up successive nights just writing all the time, and I'd never feel tired, you know, never felt that lag of energy, Mm -hmm. and then I'd go into those deep depressions, so the the diagnosis was a a lifesaver, and I have to take drugs now every day, and I resent it, you know, and I really miss the ups. You know, you do, because sure. they they feel great. Sure. But that's the choice you have to make. You know, you have to treat it. So
1: you have to find the way to get your ups in a, in a more organic and um, way as such. Yeah. Because, it, yeah, it, it, I don't know enough about it. Like, I heard your TED talk at the time when you did it. Um, obviously, I know a couple of people. But, but it is. It's it, it's interesting that it took 52 odd years to yeah. to get to it. But I suppose if it wasn't for you to bring it up, you know, nobody would. If it wasn't for you to to show up at the door and say, look, what's
0: wrong with me? Yeah, I think a lot of people are walking around with mental illnesses, you know, and mental illness itself has such a, you know, a bad connotation. You know, we're we're all out there. I mean, there is a difference, though. It does... It does great with people with the mental illness when people say we all have ups and downs. You know, if somebody's truly depressive, for example, or suffers from anxiety, it's not a normal down. It's Mm, something different. mm, It's mm. something that unless you're there, you can't comprehend. But I think a lot of people are just carrying that cross around and they don't seek help. You Mm. know, I think that's maybe the hardest thing to do. And particularly for men, we tend not to say, I Mm. "I think I'm unwell.
1: And that's interesting because I I was talking to... um a friend of mine was actually on the podcast before Ross, and he was saying, you know, he's a great person for to keep in touch with people, and he says it's, it's, it's okay to ask people, "Are you okay?" Mm-hmm. And but you, as a recipient of that, uh, before the medication, if somebody came up to you, one of your friends, one of your Thursday evening friends, you know, if we're going for a pie, are you okay? What would the answer be? Fine. Yeah.
0: Yeah. It's it's everyone's answer. I think yeah. that's one of the problems. I mean, over the last few days, we've seen all these celebrity suicides. You know, people who seem to have everything. And, and people say that, oh, I talked to them the other day and they seemed fine. And I think that, you know, that's the default answer is I'm okay. Yeah. You know, and sometimes maybe you just need to dig a little deeper and check out. And that's my
1: question. That's so for, from... Um from a person who would like to help somebody that may think, okay, um, this friend of mine looks like you could do it a hand. So from a receiving point, you say it's okay to keep, not to keep asking, but just to find a way
0: in, in yeah. that I'm fine. Look, you're not really fine. Do you want to? I'd ask the question really. You know, yeah. you say, say, how are you? I'm fine. Are you really fine? Don't take you know, it for granted. Don't, just, don't take it to, to health yeah. service. Because obviously
1: could be a big difference between, well, life and death yeah. in certain cases. Yeah,
0: it can be. I yeah, uh, but it's
1: crazy you, like it's great to see you did the, the the TED talk because I mean it's it's such a rife thing and I think we're not going to get into the politics of uh, how it should be dealt with but I really do believe and I could be very optimistic about this view but I do believe that if we can all literally help one person next door in the pub down the football pitch whatever it may be you know we we'll all be in a much better place you know if instead just look after our own, you know. Just I'm alright, Jack. You know, yeah just, so it's sad. Uh. Well look, just instead of them um, going into a more depressing uh, <laughs> uh, conversation, I was, we're gonna leave you with this song which I was really surprised to see in it, Miley Cyrus.
0: We can't st- we can't stop I know so one of the things about getting on I, I thought long and hard about you know, do I really want to show I want to hit my am I think one of the great things about getting you know a bit older is that you don't have to be a slave to fashion, you know, so you kind of go, I don't give a toss you know yeah there, there couldn't be anything less fashionable than saying "I like a Miley Cyrus song, but it's a great song you know, and a great song's a great song yeah,
1: no, I agree, and I didn't know it until uh, I listened to the last couple of days because I'm not a a Miley service fan but I might become one and uh, so that's really the, the end of my conversation and it's been a pleasure thanks a so million for, for your time
0: thank you very much Andrea. it it's been great fun
2: game now.